There are, uh, there are two ways followers of Christ can relate to one another. Um, we could be like um, a bag of marbles, right? Let me get these poured over in here. There we go. And see, we're, we got red and yellow, black and white. And they are precious in his sight. Do you know that? We can throw a bunch of marbles into this bag. Now, these marbles are going to impact each other in that they're going to touch. Right? They're going to kind of bounce off of one another. They, they, they bump into each other. But, but you know what happens with this bag of marbles? When we start to take them out, they, um, they remain intact, don't they? They remain distinct. They remain individual. Um, there's no transference of anything from one of these marbles. So we can do this to the other, right? And when believers live like marbles, what that means is that we get together for a little while. We might have some contact. But then when everything's said and done, we go our separate ways. And here's the deal. Everyone is exactly the same as they were when they got here. But there's an alternative. I got some grapes here. And it's a little harder to illustrate diversity with grapes, but I did the best I could do. with what I had to do with. So we got grapes in the bag now. And we're going to uh, apply a little pressure. Okay? Just a little bit of pressure here. And then you know what happens? These grapes start to open up, don't they? And the juice from one grape starts to get on some of the others. And, and what's in this grape gets on that grape. And what's in this grape gets on this grape over here. And, and they're, they influence each other. And, and they are influenced by the others. And you know what? If we did this long enough, they would become one. Right? Completely one. And, but one thing's for sure. That's about $5 worth of grapes. Do you know that? One thing's for sure. They won't ever be the same, right? The marble mentality represents a kind of an individualism, an isolationism, a, a, a keeping our distance, holding back in our relationships with other people. That is, and don't miss this, that is completely foreign to what we see in the church in the New Testament. And it's completely foreign to the way God created us. He created us to share life together. Now, we've been in this message series we call CORE for three weeks now. We're talking about our core values. We're talking about the ideas and the concepts that are important to us as a church. Thoroughly biblical concepts. 
that we believe should be the foundation of how we do ministry in this community. And what we're trying to do with this is to get everybody on the same page. Not that everybody will necessarily agree with everything that I'm talking about in this series, but that we will, we will understand where we're coming from in our life together as a church. And so that in doing that, this church can continue to grow, can continue to, to see God's blessing, continue to reach this community for Christ. Now, we are not trying to say that we do all this stuff perfectly. We're not trying to say that we're the only church that has their core values down. We're not trying to say that a church that has core values that are maybe uh, different uh, from ours, either a little bit or significantly, that they're wrong. Listen, it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And there are people for whom, as much as we may like what we do here, this will never be their cup of tea. They need a place to worship. They need a church that they can go to. And we can say, God bless you. Find the church that fits, that fits you and fits your life. But these are values that we are going to pursue, that we're going to, to teach and we're going to preach. And, and we want these values to shape our ministry and our life together. Two weeks ago, we talked about evangelism. And we said that people who have been found find other people. Well, that's pretty simple. People who have been found find other people. Each one of us has a responsibility to be reaching out to people that, that we know who are far from God. And that's what these post-it notes on the wall up here represent, the names of people that we wrote down on that Sunday. Now, and I'll tell you, if you weren't here that Sunday, you didn't get an opportunity to write down names back there on the sound booth, on the ledge. There are, there are post-it notes. Write some names down before you go and stick them up here. We're praying over these names. We're praying that they, these people we know who are far from God, who need a relationship with Jesus Christ, will come to know him. <clears throat> Last week we talked about serving others. And we said that, that people who have been saved serve other people. That service, servanthood, is just a given in the Christian relationship. And today we're going to talk about life together, about how believers can share life with each other in a way that makes our church and that makes our walk with Christ healthy and dynamic. Here's how we can express it as a core value. It's in your outline, that green piece of paper that was in the bulletin you were given as you came in. At New Hope, we believe the Bible teaches that people who have life share life with other people. People who have life share life with other people. You know, when I started working on this message, started preparing, I thought I'd be talking a lot about fellowship. Fellowship. But I changed my mind, and you know why? A couple reasons. One is, that word fellowship doesn't communicate with people outside church world. People, you say to someone outside church world, say the word fellowship, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. They may, they may know it or be aware of it in the context of like a grant or a scholarship. You know, somebody was received a fellowship to go study somewhere or a fellowship to research something. They may understand it in that context, but they don't understand it the way we use it in the church world. And that's because we've kind of messed it up in church world. In fact, you say the word fellowship to a Christian, and they think you've only used half a word. Right? What's the second half? Dinner. Fellowship dinner, you know, you can't, you can't say one without the other. 
We've made, we've made fellowship all about food. How many times in your life have you been invited to a church function that promised you food, fun, and fellowship? I, I wish I had a nickel for every time I'd been invited to one of those. Or how about this? The service is over and a couple guys, it's always guys, meet up in the, in the foyer. And one of them will say, yeah. Uh, and they never talk face-to-face, guys don't. But t- guys stand shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder, right? Put their hands in their pockets, stare off into space. <laughs> Did you watch him games? Yeah, that was something else, wasn't it? You doing okay? Oh, yeah, we're, we're good. We're fine. Just busy. Busy, 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 busy. Oh, yeah, us too. Well, we'll see you next week. Okay, see you next week. Nice fellowshipping with you. They didn't fellowship. They just chewed the fat. There was no fellowship there. Was that a marble conversation or a grape conversation? It was a marble conversation. It was marbles. They didn't fellowship. Listen, the Bible says that before we came to know Jesus, we were alienated. We were separated, not just from God, but from each other. But now that we've been... that we've placed our faith in Christ, we've been made one. We've been made one with Jesus Christ and with his body. And the scripture says that God puts us into Christ's body, the church. And folks, that is huge. It's a whole lot bigger than how's the weather and potluck dinners. We can't be marbles. We can't just... Just function separately and individually. We are members of one another. So when we say that people who have life share life with other people, it means that we believe people can best grow in their walk with the Lord, can best mature and develop spiritually when they share life together with other believers. That includes worshiping on Sunday, to be sure. But it also includes being involved in smaller groups that meet somewhere else and at some other time. Smaller groups than what we experience here on Sunday morning. Oh, I don't know, something like maybe a life group. A life group that, where, where people come together and care for each other and help each other and share their gifts and share their, their time and open up their hearts and open up their homes to each other. And I know, I know that flies in the face of our culture. I, because we're busy, 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 right? You want, try a fun experiment this week. Ask 10 people this week how they're doing. And I would bet the rent money, six or seven out of 10 are going to say, well, we're just busy. Just covered up, just busy all the time. Busy, 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 busy. <laughs> you might be busy because you're watching the same hour of, of, of Sports Center three times in a row. Nothing changes. All right, I, I then went to Medlin. We got our own lives to worry about, right? I mean, we got, we got our stuff to take care of. We got things we want to do. We got goals we want to achieve and, and things we want to have. And, and so anything that sounds like serving or giving or sharing or, or letting our guard down with a group of other people, that triggers our look out for number one alarm. Take care of yourself alarm. And yet the picture of the body of of Christ that we see over and over and over again in the Bible 
shows us believers living life together, being a, a real life demonstration plot of community for the world at large. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. While you're turning over there, let me tell you that my personal opinion is that Paul wrote Hebrews. Okay, and if you've got a study Bible or you read a commentary, you might read a different view, and that's fine. But my opinion is that Paul wrote it, and so when I preach and teach from the book of Hebrews, I take that position. And uh, if you want to talk about it sometime, just uh, let me know, and I'll be glad to tell you why I think that. But just want to let you know right off the bat, because a lot of times people start preaching and teaching from Hebrews, and they never identify who they think the writer is. So I want to tell you I'm going to do that this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 is one of the, one of the great chapters in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 10, Paul tells us that God chose us and qualified us to worship him. God made us acceptable to himself. He made a way for us to have access to him through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Jesus was the only one qualified to enter God's presence because he was perfect. But what he did was he sacrificed himself for us and an exchange was made. He took our sin, we got his righteousness, and there by the door was thrown open so that we can enter into the direct presence of God himself. Now that's important because God, Paul is going to build a case up based on that access. Based on the fact that we have access, direct access to God. That Jesus made that way for us. There are some ways we need to respond to that. Now, let's read. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 9 through 25. And the scripture will be up on the screen. It's kind of a long passage. Just um, hang in there with me. Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is near. A couple things I want to touch on here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I just want to, this is kind of still set, setting the stage for where we want to go. We can have confidence going into God's presence. Paul said we can boldly enter in. Not because we earned it. Not because we performed good enough. Not because we figured out how to be good enough to deserve it. Not because we dressed the right way. Or because our hair was a certain length. Or anything else. It's only because of Jesus. We have access to God. 
only because of Jesus. Because he shed his blood to make the way for us. Because he's our great high priest. He did the work. If we're going to have access to God, we cannot depend on what we do and who we are. We have to depend on who Jesus is and what he did. See, Christians don't worship a statue. We don't worship a wooden cross. We don't worship a picture. We worship a real, living God right in His eternal presence. Right in His presence. Verse 22 says, because of the work that Jesus has done in our hearts, we can go right in. Verse 23 says, because of what Jesus has done, we can hold on to hope. And verse 24 says that, it says something unique about our relationship with one another. That because Jesus has done the work that he has done, we can think of ways to motivate each other. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But three things I want us to see this morning. And here's the first one. When we share life together, we grow spiritually. We grow spiritually. When Paul tells us in verse 24 to think, here's what you've got to know. That word is a command. Well, you ever been commanded to think? You know, whenever somebody tells me to think, I can't think. Has that ever happened to you? That's like when you've lost something and somebody says, well, where'd you lose it? What do you mean, where'd I, if I knew where I lost it, I could find it. Wouldn't be lost. Think. I can't think. But, but, but Paul commands us to think. He says we have to be thinking. And not just about ourselves, we have to think about each other. Living life together means we get involved in the spiritual progress of other believers. That's the way this thing works. You know, we bought into our, our culture's notion that our faith is private. It is not. Our faith is not private. It is personal. We each have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's also very public because our faith has to impact the way that we live. And that's not private. None of us, you know, the, the scripture says none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. Faith is not private. It's public. We don't live for ourselves as believers. The Bible tells us to be devoted one to another. Philippians, we're told to put others and their needs ahead of ourselves. Ahead of our needs. And so the truth that we believe ought to be obvious, ought to be evident in the way that we live together. Jesus said, Jesus said this, everyone will know that you are my followers by the way you love one another. That's how they're going to know. So what are we supposed to be thinking about? We're commanded to think. What are we supposed to be thinking about? We're supposed to be thinking about how to motivate each other. Now, you're going to love this. That word literally means irritation. You know anybody like that? Don't, don't point. <laughs> Especially don't point up here. It means irritation. In almost every other place that we find it in the Bible... It's used in a negative sense. It means to, to provoke someone to do something bad or to, to frustrate somebody till they get angry. 
In Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas had a big fight and separated from one another and went their separate ways and did separate missionary works apart from one another, that's the word used to describe the fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells fathers not to provoke their children, not to irritate, not to motivate their children to anger. I'm going to tell you, that word is stronger than an acre of garlic. And every time it's used in, the, in the, the New Testament, except just a couple of places, it's used in a very negative way. Now, it's used positively here, but it's still very strong, positive word. Motivate each other. Provoke each other. Irritate each other to certain actions. I think Paul is saying, you've been motivating each other to anger. And you've been motivating each other to being upset. And you've been motivating each other to bad behavior long enough. It's time to do the opposite now. And so we need to be thinking about ways we can motivate each other to acts of love and good works. Think about how we can motivate each other to acts of love and good works. Now, I wanna, I've looked real close. And I didn't see where it said the pastor's job is to motivate you to love and good works. Why don't you take a look at it? If you see it in there, just give me a little wave. Anybody? I don't see where it says your Bible study leader is supposed to motivate you to love and good works. I, I didn't see where the latest Andy Stanley book or Max Lucado book is supposed to motivate you to love and good works. Hey, listen, and that's not a knock on either one of those guys. They, they are my heroes. I love them. I read everything they write. Max Lucado could write on a cocktail napkin, and I'd go buy five copies of it. <laughs> but Paul says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to love and good works. When we start sharing life together, this is what we get, right? And our fellow believers will motivate us, will influence us to love and good works. And we will motivate our, other, our fellow believers to love and good works. We motivate each other to start loving like Jesus loves and start doing good works like Jesus does. Ephesians 4 says that as we grow up into maturity... That the body builds itself up in love. So let's, let's put our minds to work on how we can help people get off of square one and start loving and start serving. Listen to me. Every Christian, every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ is in the ministry. Two people like that. Praise God. It's the truth. Every Christian we know can be involved and engaged in doing what God put them on earth to do. Our task is to help each other find out what that purpose is and to get on doing it, to, to get each other off the sidelines and into the game, to, to shake one another out of passivity and spectatorship and consumerism and into eternally investing our lives into the lives of other people. So here's how it could work. Before we ever come to church, 
before we ever go to our life group, but before we, we ever meet another Christian for lunch, let's think about how we can speak into their life and challenge them to grow in love and do some good. Just, just spend some time thinking about it. Maybe they need to hear a biblical truth about how God loves people through us. How God shows other people his love through us and our loving actions toward them. Maybe they need some practical ideas on, on how to use the skills and experiences that they have to meet somebody else's need. Maybe the two of you can join together to do something that demonstrates the love of Jesus. Imagine what would happen in our church, in our community, in our world, if we would give some concrete thought to how to stir up Christ's likeness in two or three other people every time we were together. Here's the second thing I want us to see. When we share life together, we share life together. You see what I did there? And before you, you write that off as some cute attempt at double talk, look at verse 25 again. Paul says, let us not neglect meeting together as some people do. Now, we don't know who they were. Some people is kind of vague, isn't it? I think Paul knew who it was. He just didn't say. See, and in this case, and this is funny to me, in this case, Paul is like those people who will come up to somebody in leadership and say, well, some people are complaining. Some people don't like this or that. Hey, if you're, if you're a ministry team leader, if you're a life group leader, if you're an elder or a deacon, if you're a pastor, sooner or later somebody's going to come up to you and say, well, some people are concerned. Some people have questions. And I encourage you to do what I always do. Give me a name. Give me a name. Well, they asked me not to say. Okay, no name, no problem. In fact, let me tell you this, leaders. When they come up to you and say, some people are concerned, it's them. (laughs) Absolutely, that's true. If if you're not going to give me a name, it's you. Paul does that right here. See, that means even the best of us. Even the strongest among us can fall prey to that. He says, some people. It could have been for any number of reasons. It could have been their circumstances or hard times, general apathy, but they were neglecting to meet together with other believers. See, Paul is writing to Hebrew believers in Jerusalem. And they had a long way to go in their faith. First of all, they're in the capital of Judaism, right? And these people were Jewish believers. They were Jewish people who had become Christians. And and they had a long way to go in their faith journey. Some of them saw Christianity as just something they could tack on to their Jewish religion. Some of them didn't uh, didn't recognize Jesus as God's final revelation, complete revelation to us. And, And some of them were afraid of persecution. And so it made them weak. Whatever the reason, and whoever they were, Paul says, don't go down that road. Don't take up that habit. Now, I need to be real clear right here. This is not the scripture 
that we want to go to if we're trying to build a legalistic principle that says, if you show up at church, you're a good Christian, and if you don't, you're not. The location of our physical body on Sunday morning does not determine our spirituality. Some of you are going, I want to see your credentials. I don't think you're really a pastor. The location. You never heard a pastor say that, have you? The location of your, spirit, of your physical body is not an indication or it does not determine our spirituality. That's appearance religion. And nothing could be further from the message of Hebrews or the New Testament. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying it's only when we share life together in community that we can be challenged to grow in our faith challenged to do some good, challenged and encouraged to be like Jesus. That only happens when we share life together. He's saying if we keep our distance, and let me tell you something, you can do that physically or you can do that with an attitude. Hey, you ever known a person that was at church and it was just real obvious to everybody they didn't want to be at church? Yeah, you have, because I know I have. Okay, I'm trying not to look at any particular spot. I'm just kind of looking over your heads. You know, it's just me, but I wouldn't go to a church where I was miserable. I wouldn't. There's too many churches out there. There's too many different ways that church are faithful, valid, important ways that church is being done to be in a church where I was miserable. I'm telling you the truth. I've told you this before. I would not pastor a church that I wouldn't go to if I wasn't the pastor. You, you want to guarantee that your kids give up on church when they grow up? You go to a church that makes you miserable. I forgot where I was. Paul says we can keep our distance. And that if we do, we won't be available for God to use us in the lives of other people. And he won't be able to use other people in our lives. We won't be in a place where we could benefit from God using other people in our lives. And again, the opposite of neglecting to meet together is not just showing up. It's being part of what God is doing. It's interacting. It's, it's sharing. It's opening our lives up to others. It's not this. It's this. We can show up every week. We can show up five times a week. There won't be anybody here, but you can show up five times a week and still be closed off, still be disengaged like a, like a, a, a marble in a bag with other marbles. If we keep our heart and our life closed off from our brothers and sisters, we will not impact other people and we will not be impacted. You can't influence someone from a distance. Influence takes place through intimacy. Influence takes place up close. There's no impact without contact. Here's something else that, that God knew. That Paul and the Hebrew Christians who got this letter didn't know. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. 
It's a historical fact that in just a very short time after the, the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem get this letter, Jerusalem is going to be attacked and besieged and practically leveled. Huge changes are coming their way. And in difficult times, God knew how important it was going to be for believers to be together, to strengthen one another's faith when times are tough. That's when we tend to pull away, isn't it? We tend to pull away from others when we're going through difficult times. We want to hide. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. The Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that means that we move toward others, not away from them. It means that we reject shallow and superficial and surface relationships. It means we keep on loving each other just the way God has loved us, unconditionally. And then here's the third thing. When we share life together, we encourage each other. We encourage each other. Instead of giving in to our natural tendency to keep to ourselves, to isolate ourselves, to protect ourselves, hide ourselves away, the call is for us to encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I like the definition that says encouragement is pouring courage into someone who needs it. It's putting courage into someone. Encourage someone who needs it, and there is no shortage. We don't have to look very far to find someone who needs encouragement. It's an awesome word, encourage, because it's, it's a word that's also used for one of the Holy Spirit's names. When Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter, he was using the word that means encourager. Jesus said that Holy Spirit's going to come alongside you to help you. And that's what he's calling us to do for each other. That's what he's calling us to be in the lives of other Christians. When we fill the role of encourager, we come alongside to help, to strengthen, to build up. And how do we do that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Some people need to be warned. For some people, the best encouragement they can receive is that you're going down a road that, that is going to separate you from God's best for your lives. But we, we hesitate to do that. Why? Because our culture says, don't judge. In fact, other people say that to us, right? Don't judge me. Well, hey, listen, if you're committing adultery, and I can look in the Bible and see that adultery is sin, it's not judgment for me to tell you that's wrong. That's not judgment. It would be judgment for, for me to say you're sinning and you're going to go to hell because of it. That's judgment. But it's not judgment to point out to someone that something in their life is out of line with what the Scripture says. That is not judgment at all. That's the kind of thing we're supposed to be doing for one another. You know, the book of Proverbs says two is better than one because if one falls down, the other one can help them up. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing for one another. So some people need to be, need to be warned. Some people are in a crisis and they need some direction. They need to be, be reminded of God's love. They need to be reminded of His promises. Some people are sick. Some people are weak. Some people are in material need. They need food. They need clothing. And just like we said last week, this isn't about, well, somebody ought to help them. Who can I call to get them some help? You know, the church ought to do something for them. You are the church. You are the church. You help them. You encourage them. You can offer a listening ear. You can offer to pray with somebody. You can share some of what you've got with someone else. You. And I know it can be overwhelming. I know that God has, God has blessed us to grow beyond the church that is a size where everybody knows everybody. You know, I'll talk to people and I'll say, I'll mention the name, you know, this family or this person. And they'll go, mm, don't know them. Well, they sit, you know, in the row in front of you every Sunday. Right? They've been coming here almost as long as you have. But I, I know that, and it's because God has blessed us, and, and we have grown. And, and in the face of that, it can, we can really become paralyzed because there are so many needs spread out over this many people. That, that, the, the fact that we can't meet all of the needs can paralyze us into meeting none of the needs. And there is the beauty of the life group. Because now... It's not me trying to meet the needs of 125, 150 other people. It's me and six or eight or ten other people. And it makes encouragement bite-sized. See, instead of 20 or 30 or 50 needs spread out over a whole congregation, it's two or three needs that may come up over the course of a group's life together. I've said this before, and I will say it again. If you are not involved in a life group, you will never be fully connected to the life and mission of New Hope. Now, and if that offends you or hurts your feelings, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. See, we're a simple church. And what that means is we don't have a calendar crammed full of activities and, and studies and events and classes to take up every day and every night of the week, every week of the year. We have our worship together on Sunday morning. We have a handful of special events that come up through the year, and we have our life groups, and that's it. We believe that people who have life share life with other people. And I'm going to tell you, just being honest, that's hard to do here on Sunday morning. The large group dynamic makes it kind of, kind of difficult for us to share life in this setting. But the life group is a perfect place for it. And it's so simple. Most of our groups use the previous Sunday's message as the curriculum. Not because I'm any big deal, but because it makes it simple. See, instead of having a workbook to fill out, you ever been in a small group and you have a workbook to fill out and it comes the day for your group, the night for your group, and you get in the car and you realize you didn't fill your workbook out. So what happens? One drives while the other one feverishly fills out 
as much of the workbook as they can before they get there because you don't want to get there and be the only one that didn't fill out their workbook. But guess what? You wouldn't be the only one who, there who didn't fill out the workbook because most people never do. I can't tell you how many workbooks I see at used bookstores in Goodwill that have oh, the first lessons always filled in. It's filled in. All the blanks are filled in. And the second lesson, like the first page is filled in. And after that, it's all clean and green, buddy. Nobody fills out anything after that. And then you know what happens? You get in that third, fourth, fifth week, and it rolls up time for, for your small group. And you start talking to your spouse. Did you read what you were supposed to read? I'm just busy, busy, busy. Did you fill out the workbook? No. Well, let's just stay home. There's a a rerun of NCIS on anyway. I want to stay home tonight. I've been wanting to see it. We don't do that. If you've heard the message, you're ready for your life group. How simple is that? And we ask each of our groups to, to play together one time during their semester. And that means just go do something fun. Go bowling. Do some kind of fun activity. And we ask them to do an outreach service project each semester. And that's it. Now, I'm going to tell you, I will not beg you to be part of a life group. I just, I just won't. Just, we have to beg people to do something there. It's not coming from their heart. It's coming from guilt or it's coming to get somebody off their back or whatever. Now, I I might wish I could open up your heart and put the want to in there. And I might strongly urge you, but I'm not going to beg you. But I will tell you, if you aren't involved in a life group, you are missing a huge chunk of life together that you can't get anywhere else. Are you a marble or a grape? Does your life help other people grow? Does your life influence other people in God's direction? Do you think about, do you, do you pray about ways to encourage other believers to, to love like Jesus loves and live like he lived and do good works like he did? Are there people around you that you can challenge and encourage? And, and this is the biggest thing. Are you willing to do it? Let's ask God to make us into grapes. I'll close with this. Francis Schaeffer said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, our relationship with each other is the standard the world uses to judge whether our message is true. Our Christian life together in community is the final proof that Jesus told the truth. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.